But after, thank you very much. Well, you're a godly woman, so. Um, <laughs> but um, after two weeks away from preaching, as good a job as Megan did, and I listened to Bruce on the podcast, as good a job as he did, I figured I better get back here <laughs> really quick before y'all recognize that I'm replaceable. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> by the way, I'm Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at the Garden. And we start the Advent season this year. And we're actually going to start it on a little somber note. The name of the message today is, Oh My Soul. And we're going to look at grief through the prism of faith. Grief through the prism of faith. And we're looking specifically at the minor prophet Habakkuk. And Habakkuk was written 300 years before, 400, maybe 400 years before Jesus. And it was written during a time of crisis for Israel politically, spiritually, and morally. And the crisis was very serious. There was national corruption at alarming levels. You think our government is corrupt, which it is, because humans are involved, right? Because total depravity dictates that corruption takes place when humans get their grubby hands on stuff. In Israel, it was far worse at this time. Josiah was a good king, <clears throat> but when he died, his son, Jehoaz, came and took the throne, and after only three months, the Egyptians swooped in and invaded Judah. They deposed Josiah's son, and they placed his brother Jehoiakim on the throne, and he was terrible. He was terrible. He was just an unbelievably evil king. He was ungodly. He was rebellious. And, Jos and, and Habakkuk is looking across what's going on in Israel, and he says, wait a minute. What happened to the covenant that God made with us? I thought it was unconditional, God. You promised Abraham. You promised David. You promised me. And he's lamenting, and he writes this song, this beautiful poem, this song of lament and discouragement and grief. And the basic theme of the first part of it is, God, there's decay, there's violence, there's greed, there's fighting, there's bloodshed, there's perversion. There was sexual perversion. There was monetary perversion. There was philosophical perversion. It was rampant. And even justice was perverted. And it surrounded him everywhere. And the basic theme of Habakkuk in the beginning is, why doesn't God do something? Hey, God, you made a promise that we were going to bless all nations. Now all nations are corrupting us and filling us with their disgusting ungodliness. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And will you not hear or cry to you? There's violence and you do not save. Why do you make me see sin? And why do you so idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. 
Now, I want to make sure that you understand something. A lot of times there's political fighting among Christians, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent. This is not what Habakkuk is talking about. Oh God, the wrong party won the election. Woe is us, we are undone. Don't be so petty. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Don't be petty. This is a major national crisis. The whole purpose for Israel, God, was for us to be a light to the world. Why have you let us turn into this disgusting, filthy mess? But look what he says in the second part. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And he wrote this to the choir master so that it would be sung in worship. This is how he starts, and this is how he ends. You see, Habakkuk's song expresses in the midst of heightened anxiety and fear and despair that he still knew that the hand of God would sustain him, would keep him, no matter what happened in the fallen, decadent, destructive world around him that had just been infested by sin and evil because of the free will of man. Man was left to choose, and look what happened. And the current state of affairs was, although directly at odds with what was supposed to be a covenant of hope and joy and peace, that covenant of God with Abraham and David, the circumstances say there's no way we can win this. Habakkuk says, I still have hope. You see, Habakkuk knew that salvation was not contingent upon the circumstances or the world system being righteous. He knew that God's righteous judgments transcended the world's unrighteous, and he knew that Christmas was coming. He knew Messiah was going to be born. He saw it in the prophet Isaiah. He knew why he could still have hope. Because Christmas was just around the corner. Another great example is in Matthew. <clears throat> Remember Jesus in the garden? Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of whoever that guy is, I'm not going to try to say it in front of you, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Did you see that part again? My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Sorrowful. Man of sorrows. And going a little bit further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you. Do you understand? This is Jesus who fed the 5,000, who healed the sick. All these things he faced... Satan in the desert, 40 days, 40 nights, right? 
he knows who he is. This is not a loss of identity here. He knows who he is. And he says, I am sorrowful even to death. And then it goes a little bit further, and Jesus, the Son of God, falls on his face. This guy is in tremendous grief. And why? The weight of the world was on his shoulders. His mind, his heart, and soon his physical body would begin to bear all the burden of the wickedness that Habakkuk was grieving over. Now that's grief. Dying alone, unjustly, in a gruesome fashion, by your own choice. You want to be like Christ, right? I want to be like Jesus. Well, let me tell you something. Heavy sorrow and grief is part of it. Walking with Jesus is not supposed to be this happy pill. I mean, sure, there are times when we're filled with joy and happiness, but you know what? That's not what being like, if you want to fellowship with him in his blessings, you've got to fellowship with him where? In his sufferings. He knew that he was about to be separated from his father. And the grief was unbearable. But you know what Jesus knew? He knew Easter was coming. That's why in the midst of his grief, he still had hope. We're talking about real grief here, guys over something tragic that has occurred or is occurring in your life. We're not talking about sulking because your flesh doesn't get your way or because something doesn't go your way at church or work or school. We're talking like Habakkuk-type grief, facing a national crisis. Again, not a political one, but a national one. We're talking about the tragic loss of a loved one. We're talking about a scary diagnosis from a doctor. We're talking about demise of a critical relationship, whether it's a marriage or with your kids or your dearest friend. And when grief hits you, there are two paths it can take. Path one is without the gift of faith. And here's what grief will do. First of all, if you don't have the gift of faith and you're experiencing grief, one of the first things it will do is reveal clearly your depravity. You understand what I mean? When the heat is turned up, what is inside boils over. I've given you that illustration in the past about you put a pot of milk on the stove and you turn it on and the milk comes out. That's what grief is. It turns on the heat and what comes out boils over. And number two, outside of redemption... It will create irreversible patterns of bitterness, anger, resentment, denial, depression, and overwhelming guilt. You know what else it can do? It can only represent an end and not a beginning. Do you know why? Because hope 
is absent without faith. Grief without faith is hopeless. There is no Christmas coming. There is no Easter. There is no redemption. There is no reuniting. That's the path of grief without the gift of faith. But there's another path, thank God. Grief, when mixed with faith, while it sometimes can be immensely painful and confusing, trust me, I know, it can be, and this might sound twisted, but stick with me here, it can be something you embrace. Perhaps even grow to appreciate. Grief mixed with the perfect gift of faith will change your priorities. Because all of a sudden you begin to focus on eternal changes and your life's vector begin to happen. You understand it doesn't take much to change the end result of a life if its vector is shifted just an inch? If your life is going this direction and you just change it a little bit, the end is so far different than the beginning. And so your values begin to change, your priorities change. You know what else it does? This. Grief mixed with faith cleanses you of vanity. It just rips the pride right out. And you realize how stupid and worthless arrogance is. You know what else it does? It verifies your connection to Heavenly Dad. It verifies that Dad had his arms on you. It verifies he has you by the hand. It verifies that he called you out of darkness into light, gave you the gift of faith so that grief becomes a blessing and not a curse. It can become a beginning and not an end. And on that note, you know what else it can do? It can encourage and inspire others to live by faith and not by sight. Grief mixed with faith can almost become immortalized with its power to transform you and those around you. And the last thing it does, it really, for the first time in your life, probably, at least it was for me, enables you to embrace real hope. Not earthly dreams. You understand there's a huge difference, right? I have dreams of what my life is good. That's not hope. Those are dreams. Sometimes people realize they're dreams, but it's not hope. Hope is different than dreams. You follow me? Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And one of the things that grief mixed with faith can do is help you really for the first time embrace what hope really is. You know, it's easy for us to look at hardship 
and grief and fixate on them and their pain. But when you are a child of God, you have this inhuman, supernatural ability to look beyond the grief and look at what good can come of it in your life. So, do we not, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's hope, guys. As we look not on the things which we see, but the things that we don't see. For the things that are seen are temporal or transient. The things that are unseen, they are eternal. They are hopeful. They are transcendent. They are transformational. And the scripture teaches us in Corinthians, don't lose heart. Yes, the outer self is wasting away. But this affliction is preparing for us something far greater. Trust me when I tell you. Please trust me when I tell you. You would not have wanted the pre-grief Pastor Joe as your pastor. Trust me when I tell you you only want the post-grief Pastor Joe. Because in the midst of our grief over our daughter, even in the midst of it, while it was happening, while it was piercing my heart, while it felt like whips on my back, while the pain was real, even in the midst of us going through that, I knew in the back of my mind that this was going to be painful and it was going to be hard but it would change my life for the better. I can't tell you how I knew that. It's a miracle. But I knew in the midst of our grief, my life was going to be better. And that this grief would work for me a far more important benefit and glory and for the kingdom and for the ministry God had called me to, then had the grief never occurred. So in the midst of unbelievable pain and despair in our lives, there was this unexplicable anticipation. Anticipation about how God was going to be able to use us, my family, my son, my wife, myself, for his kingdom more than he ever had before. There was this inexplicable anticipation that this terrible pain would make me better. A better husband, a better father, a better pastor, and a better friend. Because I knew that Christmas, Easter, and redemption were coming. What is it about grief mixed with faith that makes it so different? It's because God's sovereign hand on his children, he never lets go. 
He never lets go. When disaster comes, in joy, in pain, when life is sunny or it rains, the gift of faith from Heavenly Dad forces hope to reign supreme over sorrow and loss. That's what it did for Habakkuk. That's what it did for Jesus in the garden. It's what it did for me and so many of you. That's what faith and hope does for all of us. It transforms grief into a beginning instead of an ending because we know for a fact that he never lets go. Never let it 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 go. Never let it